Well, if we were to highlight one area of spiritual life and spiritual practice that seems to be the most difficult for many Christians, it might be the area of prayer. I've heard countless people mention to me over the years their own personal struggles and difficulty with a consistent life of prayer, and, and oftentimes that difficulty falls into a couple of main categories. The first area that people seem to struggle with is discipline. And many of us, I think, feel that, being consistent and disciplined in prayer. And the second area of struggle that many people have is in their understanding, their theology of prayer, of what prayer is, of what prayer does. Or as we summarized in the title of today's sermon, How Does Prayer Work? And so today we may deal briefly with the discipline and practice of prayer, but most of our time will be allowing God's Word to shape our understanding and our theology of prayer, what it is, how it works, in order to posture us for better discipline when it comes to prayer. All of us should live with some measure of mystery when it comes to prayer. At its very core, the very nature of prayer is that it is the intersection of human beings with the eternal, omniscient God. Think about that. Prayer is the intersection of human beings who haven't always existed, who only exist inside the confines of time, with our God who sees all things and knows all things, who always has been and always will be, who, who knows all that there is to know, from whom nothing is hidden or unknown. And so there will always be a measure of mystery associated with prayer. Additionally, we have all seen prayer used and misused, maybe abused, in any number of ways. For example, most of us have Heard people twist the words of Scripture to say that anything that your sinful heart desires can be yours if you pray with enough faith. Treating God like a cosmic vending machine. If you just push the right buttons, you can get whatever you want from Him. And these various abuses of prayer cause us to wonder and maybe to doubt what prayer really is. And so as we consider this topic of prayer, let's turn to God's Word, like I have all throughout this series. I'll, I'll use one passage as sort of our foundational text, and then share a number of other verses and passages to help us see the fullness of biblical teaching on this topic. So as we begin today, we will do so with Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we consider these words of Jesus, we do so recognizing that they are, at the very same time, teaching us how to pray, but also supplying for us a prayer that we as the people of God can pray. Our sermon text for today from Matthew chapter 6, we will start in verse 5. This is God's word to us. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, on street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, Let's pray together. God, as we consider your word today, may you shape our understanding of what prayer is and what prayer does and how it works. May we allow you to challenge any false or incomplete or inadequate assumptions that we may have regarding prayer and our interaction with you, and may you replace them with the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, quote, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours today in prayer. So we think about this topic of prayer. I think there are really two main questions before us as we consider it. The first main question is, what is prayer? And then the question of, what does prayer do? So today we're going to address uh, these two main questions. What is prayer? What does prayer do? And then I will share with you three warnings and five encouragements. Two questions, three warnings, five encouragements. The first question is this, what is prayer? In confirmation, we teach this from the explanation of Luther's small catechism, which I've found so helpful on this topic. And we ask this exact question in the catechism, what is prayer? And the answer that's provided, uh, it's so succinct and clear. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to God silently or aloud from my heart. Prayer is talking to God on its most basic and yet also on its most profound level. This is true. We could certainly find a a more theologically robust and complicated way to define prayer. But the scriptures just don't present prayer to us in that way. Take the Psalms, for example. Of course, the Psalms are a collection of prayers and songs and poems. Listen to just a handful of, of Psalms that I selected to see how they model prayer for us. For example, Psalm 25. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Or Psalm 71. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Or Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or Psalm 139, a psalm many of us are familiar with. 
You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. And of course, we could go on and on, but we would always return when we see examples of prayer in the Bible, we would always return to that very basic and clear understanding that prayer is, as it's modeled for us in the Psalms and elsewhere, just talking to God silently or aloud from my heart. And we see this reflected in the prayer that Jesus shares as he teaches on how to pray. How does the prayer begin? Our Father in heaven. Prayer is talking to our heavenly Father, which should in and of itself be a little bit mind-blowing for us, that we are allowed and even more we are invited to call the all-powerful, sovereign, eternal, immortal, invisible creator and sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth, our Father. While that simple definition is good and right and true, perhaps the proper understanding of prayer is just a little bit deeper than just talking with God. And so I would add this, prayer is also relationship with God. It's been said that prayer is the natural outpouring of knowing God. And there's truth to that. I I like that statement. It's also been said that prayer is the oxygen for the Christian And I think that's good. But both of those are actually a little bit limiting. And so let's simply say that prayer is relationship with God. It's not just the byproduct of a relationship. It is the very substance, the very core of relationship with God. Prayer is talking with God. Prayer is relationship with God. But then that leads us today to our second question What does prayer do? And so today I'll highlight four things that prayer does as we see in the scriptures. First, prayer gives us the proper posture before God. The opening words of the prayer that Jesus teaches, our Father in heaven, think about those words for a moment. They are are words that set and determine our posture before God. We are approaching God in prayer as his children. He is our heavenly father. But by their very nature, those words place us in a position of subordination, of submission to God. God is our father, but but not a fallible father like us men in this room are, not a fallible, fallen, sinful father like you all had. He is our heavenly father. A father worthy of full trust and full respect and full obedience. Anytime that we pray thoughtfully, that we pray with our minds and our hearts engaged, we will recognize this reality, that we are lowly human beings with the privilege of speaking to the omnipotent creator of all that exists, and we are invited to address him as our father. If we read too quickly through Jesus' instructions on prayer, we will miss the very posture with which we approach the topic of prayer. Part of this proper posture before God is seen in verse 8 of our text. Right before the model prayer, 
Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Knowing that to be true, if we believe that that is true, prayer gives us the proper posture before God. That the all-knowing God who already knows what we need before we express it, still invites us, and we could say commands us, to express it to him. Why? Because this proper posture before God isn't just intellectual. Understanding intellectually that God is our Father, that God knows all that we need, is not the same as believing it. And so God has given us a prayer in which we practice a proper perspective of the Lord. We grow in our belief and trust and expression of that understanding. It becomes real as we pray. The next phrase that we see is this. Hallowed be your name. The proper posture before God is not only recognizing him as father and knowing that he knows what we need before we ask, but also a desire for God himself to be praised and revered and made holy, set apart among us. Some of you may have been taught posture when you were kids. A yardstick against your back to keep you sitting up straight. A dictionary on your head to make sure that you didn't slump in your chair too much. That's in a sense exactly what we have happening here. God has created prayer and particularly the content of the Lord's Prayer as a means to to train our posture before God. That we would come before the Lord knowing that he knows all that we need. Viewing him as our loving and gracious Heavenly Father with with a desire for above all his name to be praised and glorified among us. And anytime we pray thoughtfully, this is what God does. These are the things that God works within us. If we pray thinking about the one to whom we pray, we we are faced with these realities. And so the very act of praying gives us the proper posture before God. What else does prayer do? Second, prayer molds our hearts to the will of our Heavenly Father. Verse 10 in this prayer that Jesus gives to us says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Think about those two phrases. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Think about what Jesus teaches us to pray in those phrases. God, you are the true king, and I am not. You are the one who determines the standard of right and wrong, of true and false, of good and bad, and I am not. You alone are the one who sets the standard. You call the shots. You, your decisions are authoritative, and mine are not. Praying your kingdom come is a way of confessing that my kingdom, that the kingdom that I am building and creating, the kingdom of this world is inadequate. That we need something 
better, something right, something good. It's a way of confessing that our best attempts at self-rule, at self-regulation, at self-governance will always inevitably fall short, whether in our families, in our churches, in our nation. And then that thought is paired together with the next statement, that your kingdom come, but also your will be done. This is bending the knee to Jesus. Declaring that while my sin nature demands that I get my way, I am prayerfully, intentionally setting aside my own way and asking that God would do what he desires and what he deems right in my life. And that's the beauty of allowing Jesus to, to Jesus' teaching to shape our prayer. That we will always confess the inadequacy of our own way, of our own plans, and, and rest in the wisdom and the power and the knowledge and the goodness of God. Uh, Martin Luther said this, a quote I found so helpful. Uh, he said, quote, God, therefore, wants you to lament and express your needs and concerns, not because he's unaware of them, but in order that you may kindle your heart to stronger and greater desires. God calls us, invites us, commands us to express our needs, to lament, to moan about our needs even, not because he doesn't know them, but because he wants our hearts to be drawn and, and kindled to stronger and greater desires. And then Luther goes on to say this, and also to open and spread your apron wide to receive many things. Prayer kindles our hearts to stronger and greater desires than we will ever find in this world. And it opens us up to receive what God offers. Prayer molds our heart to the will of our Heavenly Father. The third thing that prayer does is this. Prayer confronts us with our own sin. Those words, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, or as we say in the version that we memorize as a church, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If you read Luke's version of Jesus' teaching on this prayer, it says, forgive us our sins. Any way that we look at the meaning of what Jesus is teaching here, it becomes clear that confession of sin is an essential part of prayer. And it's only natural to confess our sin when we pray if we at all understand what's happening in prayer. When we are praying, we are talking, we are coming before our sinless creator against whom we have rebelled and compared to whom we are wicked. And so the only true response, when we pray, the only true and right response when standing in the presence of perfect holiness is an expression of our guilt and our sorrow over our sin. And a longing to be made right. And so when we pray, we confess our sins. We, we see this in Isaiah chapter 6, that great passage from Isaiah's commission and call into ministry. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a vision 
of the Lord. And what was Isaiah's response when he sees this vision of the Lord? He's overwhelmed by his sin. He says, surely I am a man of unclean lips. Every time we pray, Scripture tells us that we enter the throne room of God. And we see the Lord. And so every time we pray, our response should be that of Isaiah. Confession, repentance of sin. Prayer, always, if we're thoughtfully praying, confronts us with our own sin. And then fourth, what does prayer do? Prayer inclines our hearts toward others. We see this in verse 12 of our text. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But we see this in an even greater way when we zoom out a little bit from the immediacy of Jesus teaching prayer to the larger scope of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. In the the chapter right before this, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, this is a verse that all of us hate. He says, I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Pray for those who persecute you? In other words, Jesus says praying for your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, has the ability to change your heart. To give you a heart like your heavenly Father. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We can think and hear resonating in this the words that Jesus would say from the cross, right? Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. In Luke chapter 6, Luke's version of this prayer or, or close to there, we see similar teaching. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who, and he uses this horrible word, abuse you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Why would he tell us to pray for our persecutors, for our abusers? Because prayer changes us in ways that we need to be changed. Because prayer softens our hearts. Because it makes us more like our Heavenly Father. It makes us children of our Father in Heaven. It inclines our hearts toward others. What does prayer do? Prayer gives us the proper posture before our God. It molds our hearts to the will of our Heavenly Father. It confronts us with our own sin. It inclines our hearts toward others. So now allow me to share three warnings. The first warning is this. We must not believe that God is unaware of what is happening and see our job as bringing it to his attention. It seems like such a silly statement to make. But I can't tell you how many times, and I'm sure you've noticed this in prayer too, how many times I've caught myself falling into this mindset of thinking, God has no idea what's going on here and I need to be the one to bring it to his attention. It's almost funny when we say it, and yet I think all of us have found ourselves there. And in a sense, it's okay, because several of the Psalms express this very thing, like, God, don't you know what's going on? 
Like, where are, are you even paying attention? And so we're, the Psalms give us freedom to express that when that's our heart, but we must not fall into this belief that God is somehow unaware of what's going on. Most Christians don't claim to believe this, at least in a formal sense. But functionally speaking, we've all seen that in our own hearts, where we start to functionally doubt that God knows and sees and cares. The second warning that I'll share with you is this. We must not believe that God is unconcerned or ambivalent and needs to be convinced by our praying. This is perhaps an even greater concern and more frequent pitfall that I think many of us have recognized in our own hearts and lives and heard in the prayers of others. Believing that perhaps God is just sitting on the fence, unsure of what to make of our situation, happy to stand back and just let things play out unless he's bothered enough, begged enough to get involved. Prayer is not finding the right words to convince God to care about our affairs. But how often have we fallen into that way of thinking? Of course, this is our natural bent. And it it is, as I mentioned previously, it is okay to feel this way. We also see the Psalms express this very idea. God, are you listening? God, do you care? But, But we can't stay in that place. We can't stay in that place of thinking that prayer is the means by which we convince God to start caring. The truth is God sees more than you and God cares more than you. This is all his creation. And so we have to push back on that tendency within us, that very human tendency to view things in that way. The third warning that I would share with us all this morning is this. We must not believe that God will change his eternally ordained plans in order to accommodate our comfort or feelings. This is where much of the rub comes in when it comes to prayer. There are things that God has placed in motion from eternity past that will not and cannot be subverted or thwarted. And there are yet other things to which God has given human freedom within a certain framework. God still foreknew those things, but he has given human freedom, allowing it to play out. But again, if we really believe that God knows all things before they come to be, then even these areas to which God has given over to human freedom are areas that he knew what humans would choose before he ever made them matters of human freedom. And this is the great mystery. God knew every decision of human freedom before he gave humans the opportunity to express that freedom. A core reality of God's nature is that he is unchanging. There are certainly times in scripture that in which God is revealed as changing his mind or altering his course. But, of course, those are always given from the perspective of the human being, right? From the angle of human beings, it appears that there are times when God changes his mind. He didn't bring the calamity that he had promised, but from the perspective of God. 
He knew what would take place all along. There will always be conflict in our understanding of God's actions and his seeming response to us. R.C. Sproul expressed it in this way. He answered two questions. First, does prayer change God's mind? And Sproul said, no, that would be horrible. Second question, does prayer change things? And Sproul said, of course. We see this in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, starting in verse 13, we read these words. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James 5 goes on. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. But, but how do we make sense of this? How do we reconcile the tension that we feel between a God who knows all things, sees all things, and never changes his mind with the fact that Scripture teaches that the prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective? And the answer is simply this. We don't reconcile it. We don't make sense of it. We believe it because God has said it. In order to make sense of it, we would have to be God. We would have to see as God sees. God has declared that he never changes, that he doesn't change or alter his divine plans in order to accommodate our comfort or our feelings. And yet, at the very same time, God has said, pray. You have not because you ask not. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so how do we reconcile those things? We, we don't. We say both are true. We rest in the, in the knowledge and in the sovereignty of God, in the unchanging nature of God. We find all of our rest there. And yet we are obedient and faithful in prayer. Not because we think we're going to somehow change God's mind, but because God has invited us to pray. And so we just believe that it is so. In unknowable ways, it is true. And so we believe it and we do it. Prayer is faith lived out. Knowing and trusting in an unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing God, and yet sharing our concerns and our hopes and our fears and our longings with him because he has invited us and called us and encouraged us to do so. We pray confidently, but not confident in the power that exists within our prayers, confident in the knowledge and goodness and grace and care of God. And we also pray in the way of Christ, praying not my will, 
but yours be done. Five encouragements that I want to leave you with today. A couple are theological and a couple are more practical. The first encouragement is this, and that's simply that there is help. If you're taking notes, write down Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27. Listen to these words from Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so what does that mean? That means that there is help as we pray. Such an encouraging verse. God's Spirit helps us in our weakness in two ways, giving us words to pray and praying on our behalf according to the will of God. This takes so much of the pressure of prayer away. That this person's well-being, this ill person's health, the circumstances of my life, the spiritual condition of my children or grandchildren is not somehow dependent upon my ability to pray with enough faith. To pray with the right words. That prayer is not finding the magic words. That the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That this Holy Spirit knows exactly what to pray. The second encouragement is this, that God never grows tired of our prayer. It is such an encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5, if you're taking notes, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, three simple words, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Or you may have memorized it, pray continually. Make sure that you hear this. When you hear those words, hear them as invitation more than command. That God invites us, encourages us, calls us to pray without ceasing. This is not a hammer. This is not continual guilt because you don't pray enough. This is invitation. That God invites you to pray continually in all things, the big and the small. He never grows tired of hearing you pray. Third encouragement is this. Don't be afraid to pray pre-written prayers. Some of you grew up in churches and homes where this was common. Others of you didn't. It's common to hear, especially evangelicals today, bash the use of pre-written prayers in both worship and personal devotion. But I want you to think of it this way. Praying a pre-written prayer is no less spiritual than singing a pre-written song. If you can sing a pre-written song from your heart in praise to the Lord, then you can pray a pre-written prayer from your heart to the Lord. Simple as that. In fact, I would say that a a thoughtful pre-written prayer that stretches your mind and your heart is full of good theology and a proper view of God is often far superior to the random babbling that you hear in many spontaneous prayers. And there are many resources available to us that guide us in good, theologically accurate, proper posture before God prayer. And so I would encourage you, don't be afraid to allow those prayers that have been written for centuries to guide you in prayer. 
Fourth encouragement is this. Pray the scriptures. I will often, in fact, more often than not, when I'm praying, have my Bible open in front of me. Read a verse or two, then pray specifically about that verse. Confessing my sin, asking God to give me faith to believe what he said, asking God to make what he has taught or declared to be true in my life. Pray the Psalms. Use them as a a guide and a pattern for prayer. Pray the parables. I found great help in praying the parables of, of Jesus, using them as a springboard for conversation with the Lord. Pray the scriptures. And then the final encouragement to you today is this. Embrace the mystery of God. You cannot and you will not fully understand prayer on this side of eternity. That's a biblical truth. It's a reality. Your mind is limited. You can't see as God sees. Your sin nature clouds and muddies everything that you do see. And so rather than trying to dissect prayer, learn to embrace and celebrate the mystery of it. That God has invited you to pray to him as your heavenly father in all things in all situations and so embrace that lean into that invitation as mysterious and difficult for us to wrap our minds around as it may be that God invites us to pray for our needs and our concerns and those needs that we see around us that God promises that those prayers are meaningful and effective even though we can't fully understand how it plays out. Allow God to change your heart, to incline your heart both toward him and toward your neighbor. Watch while he gives you your daily bread. He brings his kingdom of grace among us. And he will, because he's promised to. And so we are Free. I think there's tremendous freedom in, in be, being able to pray without understanding all of what prayer is and all of what prayer does. We are invited, as Hebrews 4 reminds us, to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Not confidence in our knowledge or our understanding, but confidence in the grace of God where we will receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God never promises that you're going to understand. But he has declared it to be true. And he has issued his invitation to you to come to him in all circumstances to pray continually. And the divine intersects with the human. Prayer is relationship with God. And so I would invite you to stand at this time and to join me in praying the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and us to pray. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we confess that we don't understand fully and we recognize that we never will on this side of eternity. That we can't comprehend things that belong to you alone. But Lord, we're so grateful for the promise from your word, for the invitation from your word, that we are invited to call you our Father, that as we pray, you give us the proper posture by which we should and can approach you. We are so thankful that you invite us into the throne room of your grace. Lord, we, we can't, we just simply can't understand, but we are so grateful for your promise. And so, Lord, make us confident in prayer, not confident in the words that we put together, not confident in the the faith that we can muster up behind those words, but confident in your promises that you hear, that your Holy Spirit intercedes for us, uh, and that you are gracious, that you pour out your mercy and grace to us as we enter that throne room of grace through prayer. Lord, we confess that we do not deserve the invitation, that you would have every right as the good and holy creator that you are to just turn away from us, but you have promised in your word that you hear and you listen and you desire relationship with us. And so make us a faithful in prayer Encourage our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.